Welcome to Equivalence by Evelist, a mission-based initiative offering an unbiased source of info to people who aspire to make informed decisions and grow their career in companies who care about gender equity. I am Sophie Luray, and in this podcast, I want to open a dialogue about the notion of equivalence and how it looks like in everyday personal actions and corporate decisions. I invite change agents, men and women who are making it happen in their team, industry, and communities to talk about their journey, their practical tips, their moments of doubt and epiphanies. I hope you enjoy it and tell us what you want to hear about at hello at evelist.org. Welcome to Equivalence Podcast. And today I am very excited to talk with Diana Wild. She's been a business leader working for Fortune 500 companies across strategy and business development in the Middle East for over 20 years. And in 2016, with Sheikha Shama bin Sultan Khalifa Al Nayan, she began to volunteer in one of her endeavors, More Equity. Working in the finance industry, Diana saw firsthand the limited numbers of women in senior leadership roles, especially in the banking sector. So they went on to host a workshop for women in the industry, which served as a catalyst for establishing together what we're going to talk about today, which is Aurora 50. So welcome, Diana. Very, very happy to have you today. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Sophie. Diana, maybe before we talked about Aurora, I would love to hear about you, actually, and about your career. Basically, what's your story? What's your journey all the way from starting in the UK all the way to Aurora 50? Give us a little snapshot of those years. Sure. So um, I was actually born in in Germany. So um, I did grow up in the UK and and would consider myself British, I guess, Um, but would very much kind of resonate with those that call themselves third culture kids. My family are all expats as well. And that's actually what brought me to the Middle East. My parents moved to Dubai in 2001 and um, I started visiting them and was living in London at the time and and working in London and, and just really became more and more interested in in Dubai and really enjoyed coming over to visit and when I finished university and I saw the opportunity you know it was a, it was a great time to move so I moved here in 2005 and came out and started working for a tech startup and what I loved about that was that it they were actually providing information for banks and for financial institutions and other businesses and it just provided that transparency. So it was a great place to learn when you're uh, when you're new to the region. And I stayed with them for a couple of years before moving into running the Arabian Hotel Investment Conference for Mead, which was a joint venture. And just really from there, kind of entered into working with finance communities and eventually actually took up a, a structured trade role with Archer Daniels Midland and left that in 2019 and really wanted to focus on this challenge. (laughs) Before we get there, it's very interesting because you arrived in the UAE pretty much at the same time than I started living there as well. So I'll ask you, what made you so attracted to the UAE and is it different comparatively to 2000? What changed in the region? It's changed so much. You know, the city has really grown up very much as I did, you know, the the market's developed, there's better infrastructure, better regulations, better governance. Um, 
it, it was very much a place where uh, th- there was often a white piece of paper. <laughs> that was the one thing that, you know, when, in London at that point in time, it was quite difficult to get opportunities where you could really stretch yourself. Uh, and that's what the UAE really provided. You know, there was there was so much growth at that time that it was very difficult to get good talent. And so I found myself in a fortunate situation where, you know, a, a startup organization that was growing rapidly was interested and just there was always something new to do. There was always something new to learn. It was a fantastic opportunity when you're quite early on in your career to to get your teeth into something and learn something new. It's interesting because I had a, I had a very similar experience. What struck me when I arrived in Dubai the first time, it was 2003, was the fact that everything, really everything literally was possible. And I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but there was nothing such as men or women. For example, comparatively to France, where it was, especially at the time, quite a chauvinistic environment. In Dubai, there was such a need for talent that you could open any door. And then it was just up to you to be good at what you were doing. Did you experience the same thing? Yeah, it was a sink or swim kind of mentality. (laughs) It was a wonderful and inspiring place to be for that, you know, because it did, especially when you're working in a startup, you know, and it really did just give you so many different opportunities. And everybody felt like that. That was the that was the wonderful thing living in, in Dubai at that point in time was that there was just this optimism, which I think is still there today, but the city has you know, it has changed. And there are lots more expats looking at staying here longer term. There's a lot of things that are changing in the region. Yeah, I'm sure you would have seen last yeah. week. Like you said, it's grown up. Yeah, it's grown up. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, there's new challenges. But I certainly, you know, when I first moved out, I certainly never felt any issues about being a woman here or anything like that. It was actually always very lovely to have men opening lift doors for you and (laughs) being very generous, which I think is still part of the culture as well. So what led you to work with women in particular? I'm not sure I would necessarily say that I work with women. We kind of look at it more as a, as a broken ecosystem. So we really fundamentally believe that that means that you have to work with men and women to, to get to gender mm. balance. But yes, there is, there is a focus on supporting women because currently that ecosystem isn't balanced. And so, you know, it's much easier to actually appoint men currently than it is women and I'll explain my rationale for that in a little bit but I I really don't see it necessarily that way and so when I started my career I actually in the very early stages I worked in the military and then you know worked at tech startup and worked in finance and so I've I guess I've always been around men more than women (laughs) is one of the things that I think is helping us with actually driving this forward because we've always viewed it as something that is wrong with the ecosystem, not something that has been created with an intention to penalize women or to not support them. Just the way the system has naturally evolved, it's just easier currently to find men and actually appoint them than it is for women. And this is really where our thinking started because I was very, very lucky in 2016. I was running events in the finance industry. We organized a a session for women in finance, so CFOs, group treasurers, women from banking. And it was a real moment for me in my career where I remember sitting in this room and feeling like these women who were so powerful and so influential and inspiring. And they all felt like the system wasn't set up for them. 
like they were at a disadvantage. Mm. And it just, you know, it really resonated with me and it really stuck with me. And we continued to run sessions with the Association of Corporate Treasurers to support women in the finance industry. And that's actually what led me to meet Sheikha Sharma. And, you know, we worked together with her, not for profit, more equity for, for many years. But it was really in, in 2000, tail end of 2018, we sat down and said, you know, this, this is something that really is a big problem and, and we should look into this. And so we started running these design thinking workshops and asking questions to very senior women and getting them to come up with ideas and solutions. And there were some beautiful solutions that came out of that. There's a podcast series with the local newspaper and you know, those podcasts are also available on Etihad on, on the planes and, you know, just things like that, which mm. I think really, you know, help when you're talking about changing mindsets. But we kept asking ourselves the same question, which was, you know, but how do you encourage more boards to be gender balanced and why aren't they really? And this is when, you know, we started speaking with men and just understanding how they felt about the situation. And, and yes, there were things like they said, you know, there's a dry pipeline, women aren't interested. Not sure I agree with any of those, but more often than not, what we heard was, I know more men than I know women who would be suitable for positions. And this was something that really stuck with me. It was the feeling that, you know, there's this disconnect that men actually want to help, but they don't know how or they're limited in terms of how much they can do. Just because if you think of the listed companies, so about 70% of the listed companies, the boards are all male. So that means if I'm a board director on one of those boards, I spend all of my time with men or with other CEOs who are also primarily men. And then the ecosystem says you need to put a woman on your board. How many women do they know to actually mm -hmm. make that possible? And that was really our thinking was, this isn't anybody's fault necessarily. This is a broken ecosystem. This is the system is set up to actually keep putting more men on boards because that's how they're networked. That's how these things work currently. And that's not necessarily what people want, but to actually drive towards gender balance, that takes effort. And I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with a gentleman called Dan Early. He's a behavioral economist in in the States. He speaks about what needs to happen if you want to create behavior change? He, he talks about the idea of a rocket ship, the very simple picture in your mind. You know, you need to remove friction. You need to add fuel. You need to add motivation to actually get people to change their behavior. Because otherwise, they'll just do the same thing. Giving them more information doesn't change it. It just doesn't, yes. you know, doesn't change that behavior. So you've got to... Remove the friction. So what are the barriers? What's making it difficult to actually appoint a woman in the first place? So things like, I just don't know that many women who would be interested, who are, you know, who have, who have the skill set and are competent to take on a director's role. And they've got to be motivated to actually see that change as well. So that's really where the idea or the seed for the idea started. And that's what led to us creating an initiative that would support women but really empower men and do this it's fascinating because i guess you came to the same conclusion than we did for Everest is that it's beautiful to have uh, talks and you know to do events about it and to raise awareness but what can you do to have a real tangible measurable impact and one of them is obviously to become an enabler for board of directors to create pipeline you know what you were saying about not knowing women 
it reminds me of the first will forum we did in Dubai was in 2009. Mm-hmm. Christine Lagarde was at the time the Minister of Economy for France, and they had just launched the legal framework for, you know, board of directors being at least 30% being female. And so she talked about it, and she said that when this legislation was put, she got a lot of phone calls from CEO of CAC 40 companies, French companies, saying, Christine, we want to do it, but we don't know any women. <laughs> so she would reply, really, you don't know any capable women in your environment? <laughs> Let me find it. Let me get my Rolodex and get it. So it's funny how, you know, the story repeats itself. It's everywhere, absolutely everywhere the same. So kudos for taking that, <laughs> that challenge yeah. and filling the gap. You want to tell us more about the, the Pathway 20 initiative that's part of uh, Aurora 50? Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm very, very blessed to have a wonderful co-founder. So Sheikha Sharma is incredibly passionate about this as well and has been very, very dedicated to supporting women in in the UAE for a long time. So we essentially set up Aurora 50 to create Pathway 20 initiative. So basically the way it works is it's a year-long development program, but it's more than just training. It's, It's really an ecosystem approach. So we want the ultimate outcome to be that we increase the female representation on the corporate governing boards. To be able to do that, though, you have to feed that pipeline. There has to be more women with board level experience in the pipeline for the listed companies to actually have a bigger pool to select from. They also have to know that these women exist. <laughs> so there's there's lots of women that have spoken to us in the last year who have, who have come to us and said, actually, you know, I've been on boards on the subsidiary companies of, and I have, you know, 10 years experience. I even chair boards, but they haven't yet become independent directors. And this is where really we see our role as in how do we help more women actually get access? So that means that they have to actually go onto a board as part of the program that they join. So they get access, they have their first experience being on a board. So essentially what happens is they go through this year-long development program, but it's really, it's an ecosystem approach that we're creating. So the point is that, yes, they do go through corporate governance training. They get appointed onto their first boards. And then they go through a number of workshops. And those workshops, we discuss board level issues. But what's really important is that we involve the board directors. And this is really where we see us being able to support them in terms of building a board career. So, you know, once you've actually been on one board and you start adding value and you start building that reputation, that you are somebody that adds value within the boardroom. You also then start building your network out with other board directors, which is going to increase your chances of getting other board posts. I see. So you act almost like as an agent for building a a network because women don't have a network like that most of the time to reach this type of... uh... Yeah, it's very, very difficult to get access. So this is where we feel like we're unlocking something because there are plenty of men in the system as well who want this to change and are very, very happy to support the development of, you know, future board directors. But how can they do that? So the the initiative provides a way for them to come together. We often get asked, but women don't, you know, why do women need to be trained and men don't? And I actually... I was about to ask you that. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel that both actually need training. 
um, and that both should be supported and that, you know, being a director is a hugely important role. And of course, you want to be continuously training and developing yourself. But the truth is, it's just harder for a woman to currently get a board appointment. And so this is a way for us to help bolster that pipeline, for us to increase the number of women who are actually getting access and at the same time to help them build a network that's going to help them build a portfolio or a board career. And that's really the piece where we see that we can really support change. Support, yeah. And also gives a a way that male board directors can get more involved, you know, because they can be involved in discussions. They can be involved in networking and, you know, they can actually support. And we have some just amazing, amazing mentors that have come forward and very graciously offered their time to support these women. We also created a group called Manarat, which is essentially a group for all of the women on the listed boards. So for ADX and DFM. And even just running those sessions, you know, it was so eye-opening to me that in the very first meeting that we held, we asked very quickly, it was virtual, so we did a quick poll, how many other women do you know in the room? And I think the highest number was three. And you just think, wow, if you don't know other board directors, how are you going to compete? And, you know, these are very important roles. And, you know, if you don't have that network, you're just not going to get the same opportunities or have to, and, and like those were just discussing board level issues and working out what it is that you think when it comes to ESG. <laughs> it's very surprising that there was such a low level of knowing each other. You would expect much more in, in because the UAE is a very, very small country where local women, local families know each other. So it's very surprising to have such a small amount of people knowing each other. I think part of that is because when you actually look at the industries, they're quite different. So, you Mm. know, they might know the other women in banking, but they've never met the board directors who work in education. And you can always learn from somebody from a different industry as well. It's actually more interesting to debate those issues then, right? So, but it's very telling that, you know, if you don't have those networks and you haven't also built your profile, then you're not making it easy for people to actually appoint you. And that's where we really felt we could come in and add value. And we've been very lucky to have some great partners supporting us with this. Absolutely. Again, it just makes a big difference. Like I said, we've just been very fortunate with our partners because they do, then they have something to focus on as well where they can really drive tangible change. And it's sometimes easier when you can be focused on a smaller group. You know, it's a bit like a pilot. (laughs) Build this group up and then we'll work on the next group. That was a way for us to see that it was tangible. I was thinking you could add a module that could be very interesting, especially if you have a lot of male mentors on male allyship. Because as we were talking about why women need training, you could do training for men on how to be a better or a stronger ally to women in the workplace. And, you know, it's funny because I think men are very confident in asking those questions in terms of, you know, saying, what can I do? How can I help? Sure. It's just a case of giving them different avenues to be able to do that. I I think we see a lot more in the corporate space now anyway, where there is just, there's so much more awareness. There's so much more understanding. They can see the results actually tallying to the diversity of thought that is in now senior leadership. That also then makes it easier for you to be an advocate of it, right? It's easier to then say, look, you know, this worked in my last company. This is why it will work here. And there are some amazing men really leading that charge. 
in this part of the world as well. It's just, I, I do think a lot of it's been happening. I mean, there's been a huge amount of effort, as you know, in this part of the world. Yeah. It's just been a case of obviously, you know, you need a certain amount of experience to be a director. Yeah. And that takes time as well. So we do now have more women in C-suite. That experience that they have now is becoming really, really valuable within the boardroom. For sure. No, I'm convinced and I can see that more and more men are aware of the need. Most of the time, they just don't know what to do. So it, they're very open to help, but having more initiative, helping them understanding what they can do in their work environment to make the change really happen tangibly is very uh, needed. You were talking about the changes and the efforts that have been made in the region. So I'd like to actually go a little bit there and ask you, the UAE government, as we know, but not maybe not all of our audience knows, has been a very strong advocate for gender parity in the past decade. So I wanted to ask you in your views, how, because you've been there the whole time, how is that, is it been playing out? What are the results so far of this consistent effort from the top of the country? And in public affairs, it's very visible. But I'd like to, to have your opinion mainly in private companies. Do you see it playing out? And what are the results so far in your views? I think the UAE government's done a huge amount of work in this space. And I think most Emirati women, especially, will say that they feel very, very well supported. But when you look at the statistics in the private sector, unfortunately, it's not the same. So government is definitely leading. And this is often the case. If we look around the world, this is how it starts, right? The government leads and then the private sector kind of follows that. There are some private sector companies that are really driving change. You know, our first partner, our anchor partner for the initiative, Adnoc, is one of those companies. They fundamentally believe in diversity and they, you know, and they are putting it into action. And and you can see that in their numbers in terms of women on their boards, in terms of women in their C-suite. You know, it's very apparent. And it's wonderful when you work with companies that really walk the walk. Mm. It is very different from one company to another as well. And this is part of the challenge, I think, is that you have to find people that believe what you believe and, and you focus on those and you focus on the ones that want to drive change. And the laggards, you know, whether you're in the UAE, whether you're in the UK or the US or wherever, the, the, the laggards will remain that way and until they really are forced. But I mean, I think the UAE has really, really driven change. And if you look at the, you know, if you look at the federal boards here, they're at nearly 20% for seats being held by women, you compare that to the listed boards and we're at three and a half percent. And that really is the, the challenge. There's lots of new legislation that's come through. There's lots of support. When we think of gender parity on, on a whole, you know, there was a there was a report that came out that said that if we achieve gender parity by 2025, that the UAE would benefit from an economy perspective by 101 billion US dollars. Wow. It's a great argument to do it. The problem is you have to be able to enable people as to how to do it. And it's very different from one company to another. It's very different talking to a large multinational or a large local corporate to an SME. We all have very different challenges with it. This is why it always kind of takes me back to that behavioral economics. How do you set up the system so that it isn't biased? You know? So yeah. even if you think of simple things like promoting, who is it that evaluates who gets the promotion? Who is it that conducts the interviews? Do you have a woman that's mm -hmm. in the room if you're interviewed? You know, there are systems and processes that you can do that are easier to do actually when you're larger 
I think, than sometimes when you're smaller, because when you are an SME, you know, it's much harder on the resources. But I think the UAE government's there's plenty of things that they've done. They have created resources. They created the Gender Balance Council. You know, they've really driven this across government in the first instance. And now there's a lot more interest, obviously, in, in the private sector as well. And the two are very much hand in hand, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, if I look at what's happened in other parts of the world, I was looking at the U.S. and how the numbers went there in terms of the U.S. and in terms of the U.S. boards. The last S&P 500 company appointed its first female director just last summer. You look at the UK and the FTSE is at like 33%. It took them about 10 years to get there. So the US about 20, the UK about 10. I I think things are just, you know, they're getting quicker and quicker. And I can see that this part of the world's really driving change faster. The one thing that I've learned living here is that when they want to get something done, they do it really quick. (laughs) I don't have the data right now, but I'll check. But uh, in the the world gender gap, I think the yeah. UAE went up by like five or six places in, in five years and is on track to be in the top five before 2025, which is yeah. just remarkable. It's remarkable. But some of it is, has actually already, already been there in the culture. And this is where I, you know, when we yeah. talk about listed companies as well, I, I don't think it's a true reflection of what happens here either, really. Because you talk about three and a half percent of seats being held by women, but you will know from having lived here that there are women in all industries here in very, very senior positions and often in private boards or in family businesses. And that doesn't show up in the data. You do have to sometimes take it a little bit with a pinch of salt as well, because the culture has certainly supportive of it, but there are still things that need to change. And I can just see that, you know, when you look at the statistics of quotas and, you know, look at sort of the the global statistics for this, what I always think is really interesting is the ones that really work, the ones where the culture also shifts as well. You know, you see it in every part of society and every sort of business and every daily life. And this is something that I do think the UAE is doing quite well on. But there are still things in the system, like I say, within this ecosystem that aren't making it easy for people to actually find women for these roles when they are looking. And that's the bit that we hope to make easier, you know, by just making sure that women put themselves forward more, that they know that they need to profile themselves, that they understand how the actual process works for being nominated and appointed, and that they also have access to these networks that are going to make a big difference to them. Yeah, so, so that's the next steps you would say that are uh, necessary to get to the next level of gender equity in, in boards of directors, right? If you want to have the same number of women being nominated as men, just as a, as a starting point, if that was kind of the goal right now, even that is so unbalanced, you know? And there needs work on both sides in terms of those nominations being made by existing board directors and, and there being an outlet for this. And also women just being a little bit braver. (laughs) So so many women we spoke to who were nominated to us by other board directors or by recruiters or by the big academic institutions, they were recommended to us as board-ready women. When we spoke to them, they said, wow, I've never actually thought of doing that. I didn't necessarily think I was ready. It took a couple more conversations and then they actually say, okay, you know, actually, I'm really interested in this. I would like to know more. But this is where I say it's both sides. You know, we, we have to support women in putting the hand up 
and you know just understanding that they can really add value and that <laughs> if you've been a CEO um you know, can definitely be a director <laughs> yeah you can really add value in that room and you know just understanding what that process is to actually to get involved is quite helpful and on the other side you know the boards I think there's so much research now that says that this works. You know, the boards really do understand it. But it's then a case of yeah. a case of what is your process for this? How do you actually go about when you're looking at these appointments in future? How are you actually going to select somebody? What are these yeah. competencies that you're looking for? What is the sort of background that you're looking for? And then are you setting yourself up for being attractive to women as much as you are men? Some of this just, like all good things, needs experimentation. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Uh, it's very interesting what you were saying about not being ready. You've been in the event industry as well. And so you probably have experienced that, how women tend to not present themselves for uh, things that are going to raise visibility for them in yeah. the event area. It was the same for years. You couldn't find a woman that would go on stage except to speak about women issues. And you'd have this super brilliant women in many, many, many industry sector and expertise. And they would say, oh, no, no, I, I don't think I'm ready to get on stage. And I, I particularly, I've specifically, I never experienced any men telling me wasn't ready to get on stage. So it's very <laughs> No, and I think that's part of it. You know? and, and just sometimes it just helps just to map it out. You don't start by talking to 500 people in a room. You know, you start small, build up, and you, mm -hmm. you build your confidence as you go. And this is what we really need to support women in doing as well, because it's very difficult to say, I'm ready for a listed board. You know, that is early. And so yeah. to get there, what are the steps in between? And, and this is why we were so passionate about the Pathway 20 initiative, because we just said, we just, focus filling that pipeline will just work with a small group of women and their organizations we'll make sure they're supported they'll be well networked they'll learn how to profile build authentically you know so they'll learn how to do it from themselves and to decide this is the area that i'm going to speak on this is the place the space that i'm going to own and that people will know me for and then just opening up that world for them to actually meet many other directors because again it just you know we're in all the same shapes and sizes So it's important to meet people that you find inspiring to talk about subjects that you're curious about to to learn more. Curiosity is such a vital thing to to have as a director as well. So yes, this is where I think women do just need a little bit more support currently. I don't think it will be like that forever. <laughs> I hope not anyway. Yes, definitely. It's brilliant, 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 brilliant initiative. Just before we close, any trends you've observed from your discussions? You mentioned one earlier, but from your discussions, whether with corporations or with women, and in particular with women from the Gulf, because these are the women you, you speak to mostly. You know, I see things here quite similar to other parts of the world as well. We, we have a high intake of women, you know, very, very talented, very well qualified coming out of university. And we have a, a leaky pipeline like most other countries do. What's great is that there is this growing number of women in senior positions, but they need to ask for what it is that they want. And, and that is one thing that I would love to see more is that, that women are a little bit more intentional about their careers and it you know with with life being so busy it's very difficult sometimes to sit back and think about what it is that you want and where it is that you want your career to go so that you can think about how your network can support that and i mean that in the sense of you know you need a network for 
people that challenge you, for people that get you to learn about new things, for contacts, for just uh, many, many different reasons. And I think as you know, women don't necessarily think about networks in that way. But we see that shifting as well here. You know, there's more women, as I say, in those senior roles, and they are becoming more active. And you are seeing them on TV and in newspapers and in magazines. You know, I'd love to see them putting themselves forward more. And for men, you know, I think when we talk to them about the fact that it's a broken ecosystem, it's such an open conversation mm-hmm. because it's no longer their fault, you know. And this is <laughs> this this is mm-hmm. something that I think is is really important. That if we really want to drive change, we've got to make sure everybody has a part to play, and that we enable everybody who wants to be involved. And this is still something that I see is is quite challenging. Is that yes, there are still people that believe the pipeline is dry, believe that there isn't the talent there. I think the evidence, you know, is growing that there is a talent pipeline there that is ready. But we still see the same sort of issues here where, you know, just men don't necessarily know how to get involved in this. And too often I see women speaking to women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, preach. (laughs) It's not going to fix it. So it's really, really important that we encourage women to build networks with men as well. And and that needs the kind of environment, a safe space, if you will. You know, this yeah. takes me back to kind of being that third culture kid. You're looking for that safe space where you can be you and I can be me and we can work together on something. And, and they're the kind of things that we should be creating to make sure that everybody can be involved in actually creating the future that we want. Yeah. To create, to drive change takes effort and energy. and. <laughs> You're one of those change makers. You're one of those change makers. I think you've said it perfectly. When you co-create, the pie gets bigger. If there's that many seats on a board and there's women coming in, there's going to be less seat for men. No, it doesn't work that way. And I totally, totally agree with you on the fact that this conversation cannot happen in an echo chamber. It's no longer possible if we really want to see change. And it's happening, which is amazing. Well, Diana, it was such a pleasure, and I'm sure it's going to be so informative for a lot of our audience. How can we keep following what you're doing and, yes, give us some details on how to follow you or to contact you or to support your initiative? Thank you so much. So we are on social media, so you can find us on LinkedIn. So the social enterprise is called Aurora 50, so that's Aurora 50. And Pathway20 also has its own social media and website. So the website is pathway20.com. And through that, there's great ways to get involved if you are a director, male or female, and also to get involved if, you know, if you're an aspiring woman looking to, whether it's just find out more about boards and join some of the free workshops that we've been running, or whether it's a case of you actually joining one of our programs where you're supported by your corporate as well to actually build that pipeline. So there's a couple of different options there, but please do feel free to get in touch through the website or through our LinkedIn account. Yeah, it would be a pleasure to speak to anybody who's interested in really driving tangible change. That's what we want to do. Thank you, Diana. Thank you so very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Next episode, we will be talking about women in sales with Sue Stevens, country lead at Facebook. 
we will also be discussing career growth, bold moves, as well as a journey to belonging. Here is a quick peek into our next episode. And I think there's so much similarity between being a recruiter or working in sales. But really for me, the reason why I decided to get closer to it is I remember once receiving career advice, which was you either build something or you sell it. And that is really a way to earn a seat at the table.